Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. So we got these miracles, these 10 miracles. And again, we just marched through four of them. Steve just did. And as we do this, I was thinking on the way to church this morning, miracle, miracle. When that word comes before me, what's the first thing I think of? And can you believe it? In 1980, we had my old, very famous coach, track and field coach, Bob Timmons, over to my fraternity, uh, and they asked me, can you, is there any way that he would come to our fraternity and speak on a Sunday afternoon? Time to time, we just have special speakers come in. He was over there. He was speaking about all these incredible athletes he had had through the decades and all the wonderful experiences. But downstairs, some of the guys didn't come up to hear him. Downstairs, there was an incredible eruption of elation because we were playing the Russians in ice hockey. Do you remember this? 1980, they called it Miracle on Ice. Miracle on Ice. Two different movies have been made about this. I didn't ever see the first one. Second one came out nearly a quarter century later in 2004. And that one I saw. And it starred Kurt Russell as this coach who took all these various people together, the the coach's name, Herb Brooks, and took all these various players together, and they weren't the best players in America. He didn't care. He knew they could play together. And he molded them into a team that beat the Russians. And I remember, if you ever want to see one great speech of, uh, I always like coach speeches. Uh, Most of the ones I heard were very ineloquent and basically were telling us what morons we were. But anyway, these great coach speeches, and this was a great one. I mean, I think a great coaching speech is Newt Rockney and Notre Dame, you know. And Anyway, this is one of, going to be one of them, one of the great coach speeches of all time. So the actor, Kurt Russell, playing Herb Brooks, gets the guys in there. And they're scared. They had played Russia already a couple weeks earlier and got beat by like 10 points. Just got murdered. And now he's sitting in front of them and saying, okay. And I thought, what, what is he going to say? And uh, Kurt Russell walks across and says, you guys... We're born to skate. And he talks about, he finally says this. If we play the Russians ten times, nine times they beat us. But not tonight. Tonight we skate with them. Tonight we take it to them. Those guys left that locker room and they did it. It was miracle on ice and we've never done it since. But that night, Hope Brooks got together a team that beat the Russians, the greatest group of athletes perhaps ever put together on ice, and we beat them. Miracle on ice. And I'm thinking, wow. Now, that's what I thought of. I'm thinking, now how do I turn the corner of that into a sermon? Jesus was born to skate. He was born for miracles. His very coming into the world was a miracle. And now he says, nine and ten times in human history, the devil has beaten us. But not this year. Not this decade. We're on the march. We're taking it to him. And that's what Jesus begins to do. He says, all right, here we are. I am a man of miracles. But more than that, I am the son of God. And if you'll follow me, I'll show you how you can be people of miracles too, but not just miracles. The greatest miracle isn't that a blind man can see. 
The greatest miracle is that an unholy woman can become a holy woman. The greatest miracle is that someone who is unrighteous can become righteous by the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now that's a miracle. And Jesus says, follow me, I'll show you how to do it. And so these stories aren't just 10 miraculous, compassionate miracles he does. These stories are how we can be the people he needs for us to be. Now let me show you real quick. Move down to the text where it goes to verse 36. And I want to show you real quick here what I think this whole text is about. Jesus sees the crowds and he felt compassion on them. By the way, that word felt compassion, you're going to love this word, splonknizomai. Isn't that a great Greek word? I only say it because I'm trying to impress you. Splonknizomai. But it means I feel it to my bowels. Which meant the bowels were the seat, as far as this group of people were concerned, the bowels were the seat of love and the seat of pity. And you put those things together, and something's got to happen. So he feels it to the point of the deepest love and the greatest pity he could have. He felt compassion because they were distressed, they were downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Now, that's what you call a mixed metaphor. You know, if you would write this on an English exam for your high school teacher, she would tell you mixed metaphor, do better. But she wouldn't say that about Jesus, okay? (laughs) Jesus can mix all the metaphors he wants. But it starts off with shepherd. I need some shepherds who are going to be able to take care of these distressed and downcast sheep because I'm not going to be here. And that means I'm getting you guys ready to be shepherds. Now, it's not just the apostles, not just the disciples. It's you. He needs for you to shepherd your place at work. He needs for you to shepherd your classroom. He needs for you to shepherd the situation you're in today, whether that's a food line or you're getting gas or you're taking a walk and you run up on a situation. He needs for you all to be shepherds and more. He says, and you need to know that there's a harvest out there and we need workers. Now, I know about harvest a little bit. I come from Kansas, but we have harvest here in Mississippi. But I always remember here in Kansas, when harvest time came, you ran out to the fields as fast as you could. When it was ready, and I don't know who decides it's ready, but when they decided it's ready, let's harvest as many people in the town as can possibly be recruited to go, goes, and they try to get this harvest in before a tornado comes, before a hailstorm comes, before something bad happens, because we're in Kansas and we're in Mississippi. It happens all the time. You never know when it's going to happen. It says sunshine this afternoon. Yeah, we'll believe it when we see it. And so you run out there and you gather it in. And what Jesus is saying is, I need shepherds. I need workers to run out to the harvest. Who's going to be shepherds for me? Who's going to be those workers? I think this is what the passage is all about. Jesus, the good shepherd, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, needs us to be good shepherds and needs us to be workers of the harvest. How will that happen? A few quick points here. Number one, we need to recognize there's a new way of thinking and a new way of doing When Jesus shows up in our lives, this newness comes. And Jesus 
talks about a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And you got new wine into old wineskins. And it's hard for these things to mix. But he says, I'm bringing along some new thinking. And I want you to know you need to respect the old thinking. You need to respect the old traditions. But you need to know we're doing something new here. When Jesus comes into your life, there's something fresh he wants to do. Let me tell you, as far as this passage is concerned, he wants to make you a shepherd. He wants to make you a worker of the harvest. Now you think, I've never been a shepherd before. No kidding. He said, that's what's new about this. I've never been a worker for the harvest before. Exactly. He wants to make you that worker. And as much as we're willing to do that, oh, it's a good day in our lives. In fact, the abundant life is out there for us if we accept that mandate, that newness, that newness of thinking, that newness of doing in our lives. But the newness is challenging. I'm going to tell you, it's challenging. Like, really challenging. I ran into this I, back in 1980. Uh, actually, 1978, 1978. I was invited as a freshman in college to go to uh, Eastern Europe. And we were going to go. We were even scheduled to go into Russia. We, we didn't, they didn't allow us to get in. But we went to many Eastern European countries. And uh, it was when the Iron Curtain was still there. Now, some of you remember what the Iron Curtain's about. The Iron Curtain is that divide, wall, and then a fence, the divide between Eastern and Western Europe. And the Eastern Europe was run by the communists, and Western Europe was free. And so there's this wall here, this fence here that runs, and if you remember, Ronald Reagan shows up one day and he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And as they say... And the walls came tumbling down. And they did. And guess what happened at that point? Well, lots of interesting things happened at that point. Some of them were confusing. Some of it was chaotic. But on the whole, many good things happened. Here's something you've never heard of that I want to tell you about what happened. There's a fence separating these two populations of deer. You say, excuse me? Yeah, red deer. They were living in the forest encompassing the border between Germany and what is now called the Czech Republic. And we spent a good bit of time in the, what was in Czechoslovakia. So they dismantled the fence in 1989. And so the physical barrier was removed between east and west. So for some reason, wildlife biologists go in and say, let's note what has happened as this Iron Curtain came down. I don't know why they did this, but they began studying deer in 2002, and they realized that the deer living in Germany were not migrating into the Czech Republic. And the deer living in the Czech Republic were not migrating into Germany. There's no reason not to. There's no barrier there. You can go freely now, deer. Do whatever you want. And they're not doing whatever they want. They're staying on their side. German red deer over here, Czech Republic red deer over there still behaving as if that fence is intact. So they start studying. One deer in particular kind of summarizes the whole thing, kind of a microcosm for the entire population. Her name is Ahornia. And her movements were tracked for several years by a GPS caller. She was born now 18 years after the destruction of the fence. So the fence is gone. 18 years later, she doesn't know anything about it. She has no physical memory of the fence's existence. But she's still blocked by the fence. And so the, the land formerly occupied by the fence and its guard tires has now been turned into a large and thriving nature presence and a nature preserve. 
And the land beyond the fence has become a haven, perfect home for Ahornia and her family, but she will not enter that place because it's beyond where the Iron Curtain was. Now, they say, well, we think we have some explanations. This doesn't make any sense to us, but here are the explanations. Ahornia and her family have for years run across paths that have become normal to them and they can't leave the path. I'm thinking, wow, that's just like us. We come to Jesus, and you can see it in the disciples, and we actually incredibly make fun of the disciples. Look at those idiots. Look at them. We laugh at them. Y'all, they're just doing what we do all the time. Stop doing that. We do it anyway. Jesus says, repent, and we don't change. We do it all the time, y'all. They're just running along these paths, running along these paths. They can't get off this path. They're so used to this path. This is where grandpa and great-grandpa and great-great-grandpa, they went along these paths, and so do we. We just run along these paths. So that's, that could be it. But there's a guy there that was a wildlife biologist, and actually a filmmaker as well. His name was Tom Shinatsky. He says, I got a different explanation. The wall in their head is still there. Why is it so hard to do the new thing? Because the wall in our head is still there. There is a new way of living, a new way of thinking, a new way of behaving. And we know it's better for us, and yet we want to get back to that pill. We want to get back to that drink. We know it's bad for us. We know it's going to lead our family in a horrible direction. Nonetheless, we want that pill. Nonetheless, we want that drink. Nonetheless, we want to spend money the way we want to spend money, not the way Jesus wants us to spend money. And on it goes. We can name a thousand different things. We know our recreational time shouldn't be spent eight hours watching ball games on Sunday. It's a Lord's Day, and yet here we are. Wham! Why? Because we really like these teams. And if we'd free ourselves, guess what would happen? The abundant life happens. But we'd still rather watch the games. You see, we do all the time. You can name your thing. I don't know what your thing is. Name your thing that you're so willing to go back to instead of being liberated from to be God's shepherd, to be God's worker in the harvest. Name the thing. And Jesus says, I can liberate you from that thing. Will you let me liberate you from that thing? And the reason he has disciples here is he recognizes these disciples have been running along these paths their whole life, and it's hard to get out of them. In fact, I don't think they do get out of them. Remember, before Pentecost, what are they doing? They're hiding behind closed doors. Before Pentecost, they're denying him. Before Pentecost, they're betraying him. Before Pentecost, they've been with Jesus three years. They have a relationship with Jesus, and yet they're still running along the same paths because... The wall is still in their head and still in their heart. But when the Holy Spirit comes, oh my goodness, everything changes then. They deny no longer. They betray no longer. They're not behind closed doors without courage any longer. They're released. And it's not but about three centuries of that. And guess what? The Roman emperor bows down to Jesus. It's one of the most incredible stories ever told. Why? Because this new way of thinking was enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm not enough. 
you need the third person of the Trinity, and that person is coming. Open up your lives to that Holy Spirit. Second thing is this. Jesus, with his disciples in tow, says, hey, remember this new and old thing. Remember this new and old thing. But then he says to the disciples, we exist for desperate people. And guess what he does? In verse 18, there's a synagogue official that comes down and bows before him. A synagogue official, that's a Jewish guy. And these Jewish folks are, you know, got at least one eyebrow raised towards everything that Jesus is doing. But the synagogue official says, hey, <coughs> I think this guy can perform the miracle I need to have performed here. Forget the tradition. Forget these roads. Forget this wall built up in my brain. I'm moving to Jesus. So, desperate guides, desperate synagogue leader. Then this, there's a woman who'd been suffering from a hemorrhage. Now, if she's bleeding like this, the Old Testament has said, hey, for 12 years you've been unclean. That means you've been homeless because you can't go home to your family unclean. That means you've been apart from all relationships because no one can relate to you when you're that unclean. You've been apart from your family. There's no way to make a living. She has been living in absolute desperation. For 12 years. And all of a sudden now she reaches out and grabs one of the tassels of Jesus. Third thing is this. Blind men. In those days, we've got technology now. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It helps people get around. Not so then. They were in desperation. And they cry out to Jesus. And then there's a mute, demon-possessed man. It says in verse 32. Y'all, whatever the equivalent of this is in Hines County, this is what we're all about. This is what Jesus has called us to. Not to comfortable lives, not respectable lives, not lives where we're over here and the messiness is over there. We're called to enter into the messiness. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. The story of our faith is how the rightful king has landed you might say landed in disguise. And now wants us to join with him in a great campaign of sabotage. He says, and that's what our faith is. We're sabotage to the devil. We're sabotage to the worldly way of doing things. We're sabotage to everything that's not Jesus. And to the messy situations of life, we're sabotaging those messy situations, those chaotic situations, those situations of confusion with love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. That's our life. That's what we're called to do. Get inside the mess. And so Dayspring always wants to look out to see where the mess is and how we can get in the middle of it. Now, I'm uh, coming home from Fort Worth. What's Fort Worth this week? I think I told you I went there for an academic meeting. We are reading papers one to another. Now, if you ever wonder, you know, why do you go to these meetings? Me, it's because Caleb is there, my oldest son, and we get the room together for the week. Uh, that's pretty much it. You know, I read a paper, but I'm thinking to myself, as I'm reading this paper, there are eight other people in this room. Wow, I travel all that way and spend all this money to read to eight people. <laughs> and then Caleb was scheduled for the very last hour of the whole meeting, and everybody's leaving. I walked up to Caleb, I said, I said, Caleb, the energy has left the building. 
and he had five people. So I beat him. <laughs> but it's like pitiful. Why do we do this? Now some of the some of them are crowded. Ours weren't. The guy right before me canceled his paper, so everybody left the room and nobody came back. And so there I go. So anyway, I was I was reading the paper and he was reading papers, and I finally said goodbye to him and came home. And on the way home, I'm getting really bored and really tired. And typically what helps me that is sunflower seeds and listening to podcasts. So I'm eating my sunflower seeds and I turn on to listen to a couple sermons. Uh, and boy, one was from Nehemiah and one was on two words. And Elijah was actually preaching on Nehemiah. And one of the things he likes to do is go look for meanings of words like splunk Nehemiah. He looks in the word for Nehemiah inspected the walls. I don't, it doesn't dawn on me to look up the word inspect. It just doesn't dawn on me to do that. He does it. He looks up the word inspected. The, so if you remember the story, uh, the, the people have been run off of their land and they go to Babylon. Persia takes over Babylon. Persia sends back some people. They build a temple. It's not much of a temple, but it's a temple. And then they are there with a dilapidated temple, but the walls are down. And Nehemiah finally says, hey, king, will you sponsor me if I go back and rebuild the walls? So he comes on and he looks around and says, this is terrible. He says, he went out one night. No one can see him. And start inspecting the walls. Now, if you look up the word in the Hebrew for inspect, what it means is he didn't just look at the walls to see which ones are good and which ones are bad and where do we need to go into vulnerable places. No, he inspects the walls, which happens to mean <laughs> I examine, I wait. I hope. Inspecting doesn't even get close to the thing. I'm looking at this with tremendous hope. I'm seeing the future. Now, what I'm looking at right now are boulders everywhere, are, are, these, are these rocks everywhere. I mean, the walls have been torn down. But what I can see, oh yeah, what I can see. We're going to, within a matter of a few weeks, now that's a miracle in itself, but in weeks, they put these walls back up. And Nehemiah knew what would happen. He inspected the walls. Y'all, that's what he's asking you to do this week. He wants you to go inspect the pitiful situations of your week. Inspect them and don't think, yuck. Inspect them and say, wow. I love, uh, Josh has a podcast. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Uh, the uh, Life as Leadership, it's called. Uh, it's a great podcast, but one of the things I remember him covering that podcast is if you ever want to turn the corner on worldview, one of the ways you can do it is add the word yet. These walls are torn down. No one's fixed them. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I thought you would come along. All right. Yet is a big word because what it says is it's going to happen. And I'm going to be part of the solution here. It's going to happen. You know, Bill's been working hard on getting us into prison. And it, boy, it, it's going to happen. But, I mean, for two years he's been working on it. We haven't been able to get in. And so all of a sudden now we're not in the prison. Yeah. And now we are in the prison. Why? 
because someone's been working the angles to get us into that prison. And now all of a sudden we're going in in force to preach. You know, Miss Jody, you know, things aren't happening, John Hawkins, like we want them to. Oh, but they're going to. You see? And on and on it goes. We are people of hope because we inspect the walls and we say, this guy's a drunk. He's a mess. He hadn't been saved. And there you go. We are people of hope. In my... uh, I've shown this painting to you over and over again. I just love it so much I can't help talking about it. It's in my office. I forget, forget the uh, very famous painter. Anyway, it's there on my wall, and it's a woman who has been blinded. She has a blindfold across, and she's sitting on top of a globe, and you just look and say, now that's a pitiful, pitiful, pitiful picture. And uh, if you look closer, you can see one string on her harp, on her lyre. And if you look even more closely, you can see one star in the sky. And the naming of the painting is hope. If you've got one string on your guitar, (laughs) if you've got one star in your sky, there is hope. And the best is yet to come. It hadn't come, but it's coming. The best is yet to come. And that's what Nehemiah sees with the walls. I think that's what Jesus sees with these people. No one has healed them, but I give them a touch. They will be healed. God needs shepherds and harvest workers who are inspecting the situations and the community they're in with hope and with expectation, and then they move in for the repair. That's Nehemiah. The other sermon I heard on the way home was a whole sermon on two words, but God. Oh my goodness, it was a great sermon. But he says, listen, look at the Torah, look at the law, but God. Look at the history books, but God. Look at the poetry books, but God. Look at the prophets, but God. Look right on through scripture. It's a mess. There's no hope. We're sunk. (laughs) But God, he arises, he moves in, and he deals with it. And God needs shepherds, and He needs workers. He needs day spring to be people, not only of hope, but people of, but God. To say we can move in and we can do extraordinary things with the power of the Holy Spirit. Then this, it's a ministry model of discipleship movement. In verse 36, it says, Jesus was going. That's how my translation reads, Jesus was going. Interesting that the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, it says, go and make disciples of the nations. But that word really is going. Going, make disciples of the nations. Listen, the best model of discipleship isn't sitting down and listening like you're doing right now. This is part of it, but the best thing is to get up and go. And as you're going, do it with somebody else so that you can be training each other for this Gospel. But get a load of this. He went to a synagogue's official's house. Why couldn't he just said, hey, synagogue official, I got this. Woo! Healed. But he says, no, i got some things to teach these guys. Let's get marching. So he marches with them, and he walks out to find this woman. He doesn't find her so much as he hears someone going, whoa, someone just, someone just grabbed my tassel. It doesn't say that here, but whenever you see the edge of his garment... It's talking about tassel, the tzitzit. And that's incredible because that's the most important part of your whole garment. And it was the five knots and then a bunch of tassels. The tassels were for the 613 laws 
There weren't 613 threads, but 613 laws. And then Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that was your family knots that were there. And they would grab that. And if anybody ever grabbed it, they just had done something major league wrong. You don't mess with anybody's tassels. And this lady said, yeah, but I'm in big trouble. (laughs) I know the rules. I don't care about the rules. I'm desperate. And Jesus says, whoa. Whoa. Who touched me? And the disciple says, are you crazy, Jesus? Who touched you? You got people all around you crushing you. He says, yeah, 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 yeah. No, someone grabbed my tassel. And there's this woman down there. And I bet as soon as she was spotted, everybody went, ooh, she's, she's unclean. But Jesus didn't. But God, right? But God. Y'all, write down the list of things. Jesus goes and the disciples are learning. Jesus goes and the disciples are learning. I tell my classes all the time, if you make disciples by sitting around and talking... Don't be surprised if your disciples sit around and talk. And you know what the evangelical church is doing all over America today? We're sitting around talking. We're in our Bible studies. We're in our sermons. We love talking. We love talking. We love listening to guys talk. If we don't love it, at least we go for it. Thank you very much. But y'all, this isn't the gospel right here. The gospel's out there. Where he says the good news needs to be exported. And if it's not exported, guess what? It's bad news. We've got used to this, and Jesus says, don't get used to sitting around and talking. Don't get used to sitting around and listening to talk. We belong out there where the desperation is. We belong out there where the not yet is. We belong out there where they haven't heard but God yet. We need to get out there. That's the gospel. Are you crazy enough to go? We want to be the church crazy enough to go. So Jesus is going, went to a synagogue official's house. He's in a house with blind men. He comes into contact with the demon possessed. He's inside of synagogues, out on hillsides. He's touching the untouchables. Incredible stuff. Can I say this just lastly? When love shows up, you think there'd be great rejoicing. (laughs) Hey, y'all, if you're going to do this, I just want you to know, it is the abundant life, but you're going to get criticism. All right? Hello. You're going to get criticism. And you're going to get criticism for what reason? I have no idea. But listen what they say. The Pharisees are saying, hey, he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And Jesus has got to be saying, I just did 10 amazing things in your midst. And all you can say is, you know, we don't like what you're doing. You're just casting out demons because you're in with the demons. And Jesus has got to be saying, oh, my word. I'm going to end this way. I have 10 discipleship groups a week this semester. I got, we got so many students at the seminary right now, and it's an honor and it's a privilege And I tell you what, Jesus has really fed me this semester with all kinds of unbelievable insights. One of the questions out of the 5Q method of discipleship is, hey, how can you give thanks or how can you testify to the truths 
in this passage. We were covering this passage this week, actually a couple days ago. One of the students looked up and said, I need to say something. She goes, a couple years ago, I was in L.A., and uh, I was homeless, and I had a child with me. And I was hungry, and I was desperate, and I was alone. My family wasn't helping. My family didn't care. I was hurting. And in the midst of all that, I remember the moment when I said, as bad as it is, I said, I still believe. I still believe. I still believe. And she says, from that moment on, my life got better. She goes, now, today, I'm working for a college president. Now, today, I'm in this seminary. Now, today, I'm in this discipleship group with you all. Now, today, I'm in the Lord. And I still believe. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us to believe that you can make us into the shepherds you ever dreamed that we could be. Help us to believe that you can make us into the workers of the harvest that you ever dreamed that we could be. We're done with these ten miracles, Lord Jesus, but let them ever forever live on in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to be made into disciples for your kingdom, for your glory, for your great commission. Help us be the crazy church that runs to the sound of the pain. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.